1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jane Lee from the University of Arizona. Today we're joined by Dr. Roger Thomas and his new book, Counting Dreams The Life and Writings of the Loyalist Nun, Nomura Boto. It was published by Cornell University Press earlier this year. Uh, Dr. Thomas currently teaches and researches about Japanese literature at Illinois State University. This book looks into the writings, life story, and legacy of Nomura Boto, who was a Buddhist nun, writer, poet, and activist during Japan's Bakumatsu era, which is roughly between 1850 and uh, 1817. Through translations and analysis of her poems and diaries, Dr. Thomas illustrates the adventurous life of a complex woman during Japan's drastic changes towards modernization. So welcome, Dr. Thomas. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You've written a lot about early modern Japanese poetry. So what do you research about right now and why does it interest you?
1: Uh, well, ever since my dissertation, well, a long time ago, which was on uh, early modern poetry, um, that has been the focus of my of my research. Uh, most recently, I've I've uh, shifted a little bit toward uh, uh, philology, the the uh, the nexus between philology and poetry, poetics especially, and uh, also Kotodama, Kotodama thought. I've, uh, done some work on that as well. Interesting.
0: Uh, do you remember what first interested you to, uh, getting to studies of Japanese poetry? Uh,
1: well, I'd have to credit, uh, my, um, uh, my dissertation director. <laughs> I had taken, uh, several courses from her before in, uh, uh, in graduate school and, um, uh, uh I recall especially one seminar uh, where we we talked about some early modern poets, and I, I discovered I discovered poets like Akemi and Kotomichi, and I, I found them very fascinating because I had never uh, associated the early modern period with waka poetry. You hear waka poetry and you think Heian period, you know. And so uh, I was, it was an exciting discovery for me. And I went from there to to uh, look into poetics uh, and uh, uh, sort of found my niche there, I guess.
0: <laughs> nice. And the protagonist of our book today is Nomura Boto, a nun who lived in the first half of the 19th century around the Fukuoka area. What led you to this project?
1: Well, uh... Again, one of the uh, poets that I, I uh, focused on, and, and, and uh, that uh, Okuma Kotomichi, who was also a, a native of Kuoka, and who was uh, Boto's teacher, uh, and uh, I approached her through him, basically. Um, um, much of a chapter of, of my 2008 book is. is is dedicated to Koto, Kotomichi and his poetry. And, uh, and I, I had studied his poetry and, and, uh, and written and published about it uh, uh, quite fairly extensively, and so I, I knew of her through him, uh, and that's how I became acquainted with her. I, I approached her through her poetry, which is different from how most people approach her. They approach her through her political activism. And I kind of went the other route. But, uh, uh, but I, I think that uh, uh, many people are aware of her activism and her political activity and, and all that. But, they, but actually, she had a, a very solid uh, reputation regionally as a poet before she got involved in any of that. So, so it's important to keep that in mind as well.
0: Yes, that's a very interesting aspect in the book that we will return to later. But um, as I covered very briefly in the introduction, um, Nomura Banto has a lot of identities. She's a nun, she's a writer, she's a poet, she's an activist. But um, Oingo, who is she? What did she do?
1: (laughs) Well... um, uh she was from a middle ranking uh samurai family and uh when people think of the samurai they think it's a it's a a, a discrete class and it, it is but it, it uh there were several ranks within the samurai caste, and and uh, she was in the middle rank which was well above the lowly ashigaru uh, but not as high as the uh karo and and uh and uh, ministers and things like that but um so her family commanded a, a fairly substantial stipend um i think it was something like 400 and some something well anyway it was a fairly it was a fairly uh, sizable stipend that they had and then uh, uh so she uh, uh grew up in um not extremely privileged uh, circumstances, but certainly not destitute either and um, uh, and much of her life was typical of of women of that period. Uh, women from her class typically went to uh, serve in the household of a higher cl- uh, a higher family uh, to learn etiquette to learn uh manners and and they also received instruction in in the uh traditional arts and she did that as well during her teenage years uh and then uh, uh her um her life course was a little bit different after that because uh, she had a brief marriage at the end of her teenage years and it ended in divorce and uh uh of course, the the conventional wisdom would have you think that a demodori from that period would uh, face very bleak prospects of ever marrying again. But she did marry; she remarried fairly fairly soon, and, and had a a very happy marriage. And uh, uh, her she sh- shared a passion for poetry with her husband. They both studied under Kotomichi. Michi, and uh, after he died. Uh, she became a nun, took the name Boto, uh, which means facing to the east, uh, which uh, some people have read some uh, activism into that already because uh, she was facing east from fukuoka which could be either the capital or edo it could be either one but uh some people have tried to read some uh, activism into that i'm i'm really not convinced i think that her activism really came a little bit later than that uh but uh anyway uh uh she uh traveled to kyoto uh and uh, met with various loyalists there apparently and uh just when her radicalization began is is uh, difficult to pinpoint exactly but it certainly was in place uh when she started corresponding with kuniyomi and other loyalists in the area and uh uh and of uh, st- uh stayed at her hermitage and uh, at first unbeknownst to her, but uh, she went later went and visited him there and uh, that became a major point in her conviction uh, she in her sentencing that she had uh, given aid and and uh, uh, and put up uh, these dangerous factions and and anyway, she was uh, she was arrested herself in in the uh, purge of eighteen sixty five, uh, a major purge in the domain, and uh, and then she was uh, put under house arrest for several months, both at her uh, at uh, the uh, family home, the the Nomura family home. She was under house arrest there, and then she was transferred to. Um, uh, to her natal home the urano home she was transferred to her her natal home and it was there that she was uh uh, uh sent for interrogation uh she was uh, sentenced she fully expected to be executed as m- uh, a good number of her uh, comrades were but she was given the more lenient sentence of of banishment uh which wasn't really lenient, actually, because uh, she was confined to a single-cell prison on uh, the remote island of Himeshima. And, uh, and then uh, Takasugi ar- uh, arranged for a band of men to come and, uh, and uh, break her out of her prison <laughs> and uh, spirited her away to uh, the Choshu domain where she spent the remainder of her years. And uh, so that's basically uh, the course of her life. I, I mentioned this to uh, uh, a, a few of the students in my class. They, they said, what's your book about? And I I, mentioned to, I told them the basic story of, of Boto. And one of the students said, gee, Sensei, that would make a, that would make a great uh, anime. <laughs> yeah, I definitely
0: agree. <laughs> And yeah, this all sounds very exciting and adventurous. Uh what do we know need to know about the historical backgrounds of this time? Why why does she why does she have such a exciting life?
1: Well, uh- it, it's important to know the history of the bakumatsu generally of course but but more specifically the circumstances that led to the rise of loyalism or restorationism or as it's known in in japanese the sonno joey though those uh uh those terms and uh, uh that was especially brought to a head by by the arrival of uh commodore perry and uh, this put the uh, bakufu, the, the shogunate, in the awkward position of, of having to chart a course, steer a course between uh, appeasing uh, isolationist elements in the country and at the same time having to deal with, uh, with an evolving uh, global situation. And uh, uh, so anyway... Uh, there, there is that. Uh, there's also uh, uh, you'd have to know a little bit about uh, the the intellectual foundation of loyalism, which had its uh, roots in in uh, in nativism and kokugaku, and and uh, I know that uh, Mark McNally insists that those are different entities actually, uh, but. Um, uh, it's also important to understand the situation, the political situation in in uh, uh, the Fukuoka domain in in particular. Uh, that uh, uh, the Toyama domain was was one of, or not Toyama Fukuoka. I keep I keep thinking of my, where my wife is from. I'm sorry. Um, the the Fukuoka domain, um, which was one of the most powerful uh, Tozama domains and of course the a lot of the tozama domains had kind of uneasy relationships with the shogunate but but with the uh fukuoka domain it was a little bit different because they they played the role of a kind of hashiwatashi or middleman between the shogunate and the um and the uh satsuma domain where where there really were a lot of rebellious elements and uh that was that came about partly because of marriage politics. Uh, the uh, uh, the Kuroda family of of Fukuoka had married into into the um, uh, uh, into the shogunal line, and also uh, the uh, lord of the domain at that time uh, uh, was actually born a Shimada, which was from. Uh, Satsuma, and he was adopted he was adopted into the Kuroda family and became its heir as a kind of mukoyoshi and so uh that that put uh, uh the fukuoka domain in in a kind of interesting position because uh they they were able to be this middleman, but it also created difficulties for them because they uh they had to try to uh again. Uh, do a balancing act between the the um, uh pleasing the staying on the good side of the shogunate and also not antagonizing their their satsuma relatives. Uh, and uh that was uh uh Nagahiro who was who was Kuroda Nagahiro who was the d- domain lord at the time um, he actually had a kind of ambivalent relationship with loyalism for a long time But uh, especially after uh, uh, the uh, first Choshu expedition, the punitive punitive expedition, uh, he went all out against the loyalists then. And uh, that that had uh, an ironic uh, um, result that uh, unlike Choshu, a lot of uh, later Meiji leaders came from the Choshu domain. But hardly any of them came from, I don't think any of them came from the Fukuoka domain. That's probably because most of them were executed. <laughs> a lot of them were. And uh, uh, Boto was, um, was one of the survivors of the purges. And uh, I think that that's, um, that's one reason that, that she's kind of a local hero. In, in and that's one thing, one factor maybe.
0: Yeah, it's such a delicate situation that she was in. And just in case um, some of our listeners might not be familiar with the ge- geographical location of these domains. Um, so Fukuoka domain was kind of between the, the, the capital and the southern domains from Kyushu where um, the loyalists first started to um, riot against the Uh, bakufu armies so that's something important to keep in mind um you mentioned that um, Nomura was a dedicated waka poet Um, apparently she gained a considerable reputation for her waka poets. so at that time how popular was waka learning in this region and were there any differences from waka practices before this period Say from the ham period because we don't often see female waka poets until the um, early modern period. Is that correct?
1: Well, uh, yes. Um, uh, actually, the uh, uh the area, the, the Hakata Fukuoka area, had a, a long uh, literary tradition that goes way back to the Manyoshu period, and so there had been a lot of uh literary activity there from early times Uh, but it there were no no real uh, regional distinct regional uh, differences stylistically until you get very close to the end of the the, uh, early modern period and then you have uh, uh, schools of poets like Kotomichi Uh, uh, you see a great deal of vernacularization in their poetry and and from the beginning of the uh, early modern period, uh, there was this this inexorable move away from court dominance of poetry. The the uh, early modern period began with uh, almost total a uh, monopoly of the art by uh, by court poets. Uh, they 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 uh insisted on maintaining certain secret practices and, and they were the only teachers, they, they were the only ones who really got it. Uh, but more and more that was that was contested. It was contested of course by the, the rise of Kokugaku and uh but more in in the the um in the Fukuoka domain in that area especially uh, by poets like Kotomichi this vernacularization who he, he didn't give a hoot about uh, the the court precedent uh, he he didn't but and he didn't care for uh, uh, the uh, kokugaku poets either. he really steered a maverick course and uh, a lot of his poetry has been called haikai like or it's it's very it has much of the ambience of a haiku and uh, that's one thing that I always found. Especially interesting about his poetry, and so uh, 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 and that—that's part of a, a, a trend t- toward decentralization. Um, until the nineteenth century, there there was what could be called a kadan, a, a establishment poets, establishment poetry, and and, and dominant schools. But there was a movement away from that, especially toward the Bakumatsu period. No, nobody really cared about that anymore, and so that decentralization gave birth to to uh, these distinctive styles like that.
0: You also mentioned that the rise of nativist studies or Kokugaku had profound influence on waka poetry towards the late Tokugawa period. So, in what aspects did they differ uh, in on? On ways to write waka and why?
1: Well, with the rise of nativism, there was, of course, they they uh, they rejected uh, in, any claim of, of court prerogative in in waka composition. Uh, they they turned instead to uh, 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 pre aristocratic models, the the man'yoshu in particular, and uh, and uh, so a lot of the uh, uh, Styles of poetry that that arose out of that uh, used a lot of self-conscious archaisms. They 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 went back beyond the. Uh, the standard uh, Heian diction and lexicon, and, and went back to use um, archaic terms in their poetry that, that, that were uh, very hard to understand. A lot of them wrote in, in uh, Manyogana because they thought that may, gave it more of a, an ancient ambience. Uh, and uh, there was also uh, the rise of the uh, restoration of Choka because choka had kind of been neglected for most for many centuries. And uh, uh, so they saw this uh, this manyo-centered uh, uh, approach as as uh, predating court dominance. Uh, and out of that came a, a new style, especially with the rise of loyalism, uh, came what is called shishigin, or patriot's verse. And... Uh, uh, a lot of what was written by loyalists was very little poetic talent but boy did were they passionate and then, so they they poured their passion into their verse and uh uh loyalists were expected to to um uh commit their their uh passion to to this style of verse and and uh as I, as I mentioned in in some places in the book i i uh, this this presented a a bit of a problem for female loyalists because um uh this uh patriot verse style was decidedly masculine in tone and and, uh, and women were expected to be a little more delicate a little more tau yame budi and and uh, that sort of thing and so um uh it was difficult for them to to strike the right tone in in uh, writing this kind of verse uh, but anyway uh, also the um the loyalists were tended to be anti-foreign in general and so they they uh, uh that's why they liked waka it uh, until and pretty much until the meiji period uh, uh, waka used only native diction Wago it didn't use Congo uh, at all and uh, so it was seen as, as a uh, as a pure expression of the Japanese spirit and uh, so that's why a composition in it was kind of sacramentalized for these people.
0: And did Boto write a lot of these uh, patriot verses as well?
1: Uh, she did write some. I'll I'll have to kind of paraphrase the the verse. I I didn't I didn't uh uh put a bookmark in it I'm afraid but uh one one verse she she says she wrote to uh, a person uh, departing to Kyoto to act as a guard she said if I were one who who uh, uh bore armor that is if I were a man wearing armor do you think I'd be one step behind you in in uh, performing this duty that's paraphrasing it, but that's basically the the uh, in uh, the sense of the poem and, and uh, so she did she did write uh, a poetry like that. and uh, so yeah, I um, well, maybe wait a minute, maybe I, I can let me get my glasses here. Yeah uh, okay, here here's one. Yeah oh yeah here here that verse is uh would I arrive even a step after you if I were numbered among those who bear the catalpa bow meaning the 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 bow the of uh, a warrior and uh another one that she she wrote um uh when she um she had a dream, and she writes a lot about her dreams, uh, and dreams are very important to her. But she had a dream about uh, the approach of foreign ships, and uh, she wrote, uh, Even in a dream on a night in spring instead of blossoms, an onslaught of foreign ships. So uh, she had the, that preoccupation with these kurobune that were, were uh, uh, making incursions into Japan, and uh, that, that, was, um, that was actually written before her radicalization. But, so she did write write uh, uh, write these, these kinds of verses.
0: You also uh, talked in the book that uh, the role of the four-class social structure that we briefly talked about earlier um, in the story of Boto as well as how her story defies this structure. Can you talk more about this aspect?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, uh, well, I think most of us, uh, when we first started studying Japanese history and so forth, we, we came across this idea of shino koshio, uh the samurai uh, peasant artisan merchant, in descending order, <laughs> supposedly. And... Uh, uh, i think a lot of us had came away with the idea that these were were very rigid and that they were somehow written into law and uh, um of course there was a was a lot of rigidity about the way they were they were uh, practiced but the, it seems that it was actually more a matter of custom than of law but it was a very rigid custom nevertheless and these uh customs uh started to give way to break down uh, toward the bakumatsu period um uh we find more association between commoners and samurai uh in many ways uh, uh we find them attending the same schools together the same academies together which in an early earlier generations would not have occurred uh we we see that uh, boto herself uh, studied Waka under kotomichi who was from the m- merchant class and she was very devoted to him and uh, she she took students, poetry students herself from different classes. So there, there was this uh, kind of fraying of, of this of these uh, this social class structure um, and uh, of course a lot of uh, commoners were were being given the privilege of, using surnames and carrying swords. There's some evidence that a few of the wealthy merchants even purchased that <laughs> privilege, but, so it was, uh, but they were supposed to have ge- been given the privilege because of m- some meritorious deed, but anyway. Uh, and also, uh, uh, toward the end of the period, we see uh, commoners uh, fighting in militias. Uh, the, uh, the Shinsengumi, the shinsengumi included uh, numerous uh, commoners that were recruited from among peasants and other commoner groups and and uh, in the choshu domain uh, 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 takasugi's uh kiheitai also y- uh, recruited a lot of uh, commoners so uh, there was a, a breakdown of these social classes toward the end of the period and 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 boto uh, illustrates that in many ways.
0: Yeah. Shinsengumi is actually the reason I got into Japanese studies, which is oh, such really? a cliche. <laughs> 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 not, not nearly as interesting as Boto's story. <laughs> 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 um, in your book, uh, the role of gender is another very important theme because during the time that Boto lived, um, well, there probably Weren't many women like her to get um, this involved in publishing or taking disciples or voicing their political views? So could you maybe tell us more about uh, this part?
1: Well, uh, of course, uh, from the Manyoshu period onward, uh, there was never a period when women didn't compose uh, waka. They, they always did. but uh from the medieval period on uh, uh, figures like Abutsuni and and uh, those those figures from from about her time until uh m- nearly the 19th century even though women composed plenty lots of waka they they weren't as visible they 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 were not uh, publishing collections they they uh uh they uh they're, they didn't have as much of a public role in in, in uh, waka composition, and uh, and th- this also changed toward the end of the Tokugawa period. You had uh, you have the appearance of, of uh, a number of women who were very prominent as poets, and uh, who who uh, did uh, teach, and they even taught men as as uh, uh, boto herself did and and in an earlier generation that that would have been uh highly unlikely but uh in it wasn't it wasn't unheard of in in her in her period so uh it, it you couldn't say it was commonplace but it was it was not unheard of nobody was really shocked by it anymore
0: that's fascinating um what about the atmosphere of that time that may have influenced her writings? Um, we, you mentioned briefly in the book um, and there recently have been studies about this uh, uh, millennial-ran atmosphere where uh, we have uh, these events such as the Ejia dance where people got in the streets, they were chanting about the end of the world Um, And this was sort of an atmosphere that lasted until after even the Meiji Restoration. So how did such an environment shape or impact both those writings?
1: Um, Well... I I, uh, I quote Victor Turner, who is uh, very well known as a cultural anthropologist, and and uh, he he's written a lot about this phenomenon, which he calls liminality, and liminality is uh, is trans- transgressing the limen, uh, that is uh, 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 challenging the the norms and practices of of the uh, of the old regime. And in this case, the old regime would have been the shogunate itself. But um, anyway, uh, th- these uh, these times come about in a period of perceived crisis. People, people, uh, uh, there's kind of a crisis mentality that, that pervades society. And uh, a certain element of society wants to uh, reclaim, go back to... Uh, some primal uh, state of purity and uh, you certainly see that in a lot of uh, it was given uh, a kind of intellectual foundation by much kokugaku writing Uh, but um, uh, Turner also says the that uh, that people in this state tend to use utilize liminoid genres uh, such, uh, literary genres. And, and, uh, uh, for Boto, I think that, uh, Waka was that kind of liminoid genre that, uh, uh she, uh, she combined a historical time with mythical time. And especially in her case, I think you could say oniric time, that is dream time, because she placed so much emphasis on dreams. Uh, and, uh, uh the uh the opening lines of of uh of uh her diary the counting of dreams counting dreams it uh it resonates throughout the entire diary and uh and y- you can sense this this that she felt this impending change huge structural changes uh, uh, that were uh imminent and uh and that, that affected her writing especially uh, during her incarceration and, and uh and her remaining years in choshu. You see it especially there. She she um, uh, her last uh collection of poetry, the Boshu diary, it's very millennialist in tone. It's it's as if she expected a whole new world to open up. <laughs> uh with the fall of the uh of the uh shogunate so
0: so she was very um active in participating these political um events and she also as you mentioned earlier um actively voiced her opinions about these events how did she write about it and do you see any transformations in her writing throughout the throughout time
1: uh, well, yes, there are definitely transformations. I think her writing could be uh, uh, put into three periods. Uh, the, the, her, uh, uh, her earliest period, uh, when she began her tutelage uh, under Kotomichi, uh, until, until Kotomichi's depart, departure to uh, uh, Kyoto and uh, her husband's death, uh that that first period uh, her her poetry was i wouldn't say conventional because uh uh it it was uh it it uh was unique it was unlike kotomichi's in many ways in many ways but uh it uh she had a, a distinctive style and, and it was, uh, th- the poetry from that period is very good. And I, I include m- many translations from it in, in my book. Uh, then, uh, the period of, of her, uh, uh, um, political awakening, I guess you'd say, up through her, uh, incarceration, uh, is another period, uh, uh, there, there is a noted stylistic change there, shift, uh, you can see she's much more pro- preoccupied with, uh, with the, the Tenjin cult, the, the cult of, of uh, Michizane, and, uh, she, she ob- observes those things with much more fastidiousness, and, uh, uh, that's all tied in with her, her, uh, her growing political vision. And then the third phase would be uh, her remaining years in, in uh, Choshu, where uh, her, uh, her poetry and her writing is, is very millenarian in tone. So uh, you can see those shifts through, through her, throughout her writing.
0: With the, this much writing, um, what kind of legacy do you think she left?
1: Well, she left a very, a very diverse one. Uh, actually, a lot of uh, Bakumatsu figures have have uh, been treated uh, in uh, historical fiction, film, plays, and uh, a lot of them have uh, Yoshida Shoin, for example. Uh, Saigo Takamori, uh, all of those figures—they've they, been uh, repeatedly portrayed, and, and uh, their, their portrayal has changed with each age to, to suit different audiences' tastes and demands and, and worldviews. And in that sense, uh, uh, Boto is, is no different. I could, I think, but but in in, in at least one uh, respect, she is very different, and that is. Uh, uh, the way she was treated had as much to do with with the fact that she was a woman as it had to do with uh, changing tastes of audience, and uh, I think that uh, you can see that in in a number of instances. Uh, uh, for example, uh, just a few years after her death, uh, there was a um, an account of her life, a brief account just a few paragraphs uh segi jim maizodan illustrated biographies of latter-day champions of justice that came out in 1874 that was just years after her death but uh, and it, it's from that that the cover of the book is uh, is taken from that uh, uh, but anyway uh, it's it's interesting that in that that account she's identified as the wife of Saratsura, her husband, and as the the grandmother of Habuku, her grandson. So, as if she could only derive her identity from the men in her life. But the the, the interesting thing is that uh, uh, readers would not ha- have known who those men were, and uh, the the uh it the po- poem that is cited in that work isn't even her poem it's someone else's poem and so it it gives very scant treatment of her so it it gives hardly any idea of of who she was uh, and then in the uh in later works uh, meiji through taisho uh we see we see a lot of emphasis on on uh well yeah she was an activist, and yeah, she did all of these things, but she was also thoroughly grounded in the traditional feminine arts of of poetry. they mentioned poetry as if that's uh, an exclusively feminine art and uh, uh and sewing and uh, uh flower arranging and tea ceremony she was good at all of those things too as as if as if uh that were necessary to justify her her being involved in, as an activist as well so uh, uh that that was kind of interesting the the uh, uh a lot of later taisho works uh, also uh portray her as kind of a uh, a nurturing figure to the loyalists she was sort of their mom you know <laughs> uh, in fact uh they some of them even called her uh, shishino haha the mother to the loyalists, so she was, uh, she was this uh, mother figure to them, and uh, so uh, we see that in in some Taisho show uh, period uh, treatments of her. Uh, as as we move into the uh, war years and the rise of milita- militarism, of course, uh, she takes upon a, a much more martial. Uh, aspect in those works, and she appears in in, uh, in numerous uh, school readers for the period as as a uh, uh, to inspire the women of Japan. See, you can be as valiant as she was, and uh, the the treatments after the war, uh, the post war period are interesting. They they um, uh, they. They uh, portray her as more of a peacemaker. The, they they put less emphasis on on uh, the martial aspects, uh, and uh, one in particular, uh, Morota Reiko. Uh, I I've, and I'm impressed with her writing. She's she's a, a, a tremendously uh, talented novelist, but uh, her treatment of of uh, Boto. Uh, <laughs> she introduces a lot of amorous elements into it. Uh, one of the lo- uh, one of the uh, loyalists that uh, she associated with um, uh, was um, let's see. I don't. If I can find a, a place here, I can maybe read a a line or two from it. Uh, yeah, when she. Uh, in, in, um, uh, Moroto's account, when she goes to, uh, Choshu, uh, for, in her remaining years, she meets, uh, uh Takasugi's, uh, concubine, and, uh, who, and she actually did, in that, that part of it is historical, but, uh, in this account, she kind of became a mentor to, to this, uh, concubine, and, uh. Um, she, um, Ouno, who is the name of the concubine, says, strange, this hand of yours. And, uh, Boto says, I too once had my hand squeezed like this, or rather, I was the one who first extended the hand. It really did lighten my heavy heart. Oh, whose hand did you squeeze? A neighbor's, a fellow loyalist, someone I was in love with and this was after her husband's death of course but but even so uh, just just introducing that uh entirely fictitious amorous element uh, uh i mean it, it works as fiction but <laughs> but it takes a lot of liberties if you're uh, from the historical account and then uh, boto has also appeared in a couple of uh, a taiga drama uh, that have, that have aired and uh, um, also I might mention in the in the Taisho period, there were a couple of uh, non-historical features that that were portrayed that have been kind of found their way almost into into uh sort of historical treatments. The idea that Gesho visited her which there's no there's no basis for that at all or that saigo takamori visited her at her hermitage there's no basis for that but but this this uh, myth started that that uh, boto was responsible for bringing takasugi shinsaku and saigo takamori together and that made for the satcho dome uh, the 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 uh, alliance between Satsuma and Choshu, and of course that's entirely fictitious, but there there seem to be some people who seriously st- believe that that happened because of uh, these works of fiction. So anyway, she's had a, a very a very diverse uh, uh, legacy.
0: She does indeed. Um, it's it's. Yeah, I think it's quite a pity how um, female historical figures have been treated (laughs) in scholarships or even on media. So I guess at least all these uh, fictionalization about her is better than Hollywood making a movie of her (laughs) casting a white actress or something. But uh, in the introduction part, you briefly talked about problems with writings on female historical figures. Um, other than these problems that we've just talked about, what else are there and how does your book deal with these problems when writing about Boto?
1: Well, uh, actually I'm not confident that I, I will, uh, satisfy every reader in this respect, but, uh, but uh, the, the problems are various. One, one is, is, uh, a lack of, uh, pioneering studies on the lives of samurai women now there there are, have been some very good studies in english on on uh, women of the bakumatsu uh there's uh ann walthall's uh work on um uh, and uh, also uh laura nenzi uh, her work on uh kurosawa tokiko uh but uh those both of those works treat women of the commoner class and uh uh a number of of writers japanese uh, critics as well have have noted that uh uh treatments of of uh early modern women have not been that plentiful to begin with and 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 most of them that that there are have uh focused on commoners and uh here i was treating a woman of the samurai class so that uh, uh that uh, brought in a whole different dimension um and also there's there's the the problem of how to deal with uh deal with problems of the age that women faced uh, you know striking a right balance with a a tendency uh, in some writing you you see what i think is a tendency to kind of exaggerate or or hyperbolize as if every woman in japan from the period uh was was haunted by the onna daigaku and so forth and and uh it, boto certainly wasn't <laughs> and she even came from the domain that it that it uh, purportedly uh sprang from you know uh, but she obviously was not and uh uh I, I find that that a lot of these accounts really beg for more nuance you know but on on the other hand I don't want to to minimize uh the the trials the the difficulties that women of the period faced um well every it was a very oppressive regime and and it wasn't it, it was oppressive for everyone <laughs> uh, re, uh men and women but women had their own peculiar difficulties that they faced um anyway uh, there's um uh, uh, there's also this this uh i'm not sure that i, I tried preemptively anticipating, uh, accusations from some readers that, that I haven't consulted this or that feminist critic. Um, and again, I, I approached, um, I approached Boto initially as a person, as a poet, and, uh, uh her, uh, her, uh, gender was secondary to that, uh, but uh, and and I think that uh, her her uh, her accomplishments uh, stand on their own merit. Uh, they they. Uh, uh, but I don't know. Maybe maybe some people will will be dissatisfied that I didn't consult this or that school of thought. But um, but I I do I do uh, uh, I do try to uh, throughout the book. Uh, a look at at uh uh the problems the 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 um that are posed by her gender and uh, that that in in travel and in um in uh, various activities that she she engaged in so uh, anyway i'll find out when i see the reviews <laughs> whether i
0: for what it's was, I definitely thought um, your your angles uh, looking into her poems and diaries and taking all things into account, I didn't think it was um it would have needed too much theoretical support, especially from feminist theories. Um,
1: but well, uh, it's, it's, perhaps- it's, it's reassuring to hear that <laughs>
0: okay. Uh, And and I I certainly hope to see more studies like this that can look into female historical figures from more various angles um, rather than relying solely on theories for that matter. But, yeah, thank you so much for this um, wonderful conversation. It was very thought-provoking.
1: Well, thank you.
0: And uh, for our listeners to learn more about Boto's adventurous life, make sure you check out this new book by Dr. Roger Thomas, Counting Dreams, the Life and Writings of the Loyalist Nun Nomula Boto. This is Jane from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you soon.